Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Quasar Mirror, and the author who joins me from Florida is Stephen McCoy. Welcome, sir, to the program. Hi. This is uh, this looks like a, a science fiction novel. I'm guessing that's possibly the area. Tell me a little bit about Quasar Mirror. Well, Quasar Mirror, it's a science fiction adventure, action adventure. Uh, it actually takes place in the year 2151 um, with a crew of six that's going to be launching and to mine uh, gold and diamonds. Ah. On the moon of Jupiter, you have uh, obviously a creative, uh, a creative interest, and and have you always been fascinated by things scientific? I guess there's a lot of science in this in this book novel in this novel. Yes, I try to go with a lot of science. And was there a lot of research in order to make this believable to the audience? Uh, how long did it take you to complete Quasar Mirror? Uh, Quasar Mirror. It was a working project, uh, approximately. Four to four and a half years. You have. I'm looking at the the way the the chapters are the the pages are listed. You have listed them by I guess day of the missions, uh, mission day twenty, and then mission day one forty three. Would this be something I would compare to maybe a Star Trek Enterprise or or any of those uh, video or or movie presentations? Uh, yes. And did that have an influence on the storyline? Uh, it was uh, somewhat, pretty much. It's uh, and uh, one of my best movies is Armageddon. Okay, so that's kind of where I got some of the information from. Osprey Crew. That is your main your main focus. Is is that the correct understanding? Who they are and what they are? Yes. Uh, the crew consists of six, the captain, Captain Winters, his XO, his uh, Thomas, and his, and the executive, I mean, the science officer is uh, Susan Winters, who is actually married to the captain. Mm-hmm. Then we also have uh, two other crew members. Mario and John, and one payload specialist, Denise. In crafting this, you have uh, certainly listed a number of characters. Are there characters that stand out from the rest that are your main focus, or is this a general uh, buddy movie, if you want to put it in a buddy movie uh, uh, characteristic or, or theme? Well, the main character would be kind of like Susan. She goes through a lot of conflicts with the captain, and especially uh, with the uh, duration of the uh, mission. It takes uh, 17 months, so she has to put up with with the captain in more ways than one. Right. And, and, and the, the storyline itself... 
is this, if you took it out of the future tense, if you took just the bare bones of the story, would that exist in our current generation, or is there really so much scientific and uh, conjecture and forward thinking in the novel that it really needs to be set in the future? Or how would you describe this? Uh, it would have to definitely would be in the future. And uh, I picked the year 2151, uh, figure the advances of uh, rockets and hibernation, then having a four crew on 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 one of the moons of Jupiter, you know. There's a base station that will help them supply, resupply the ship on the return route. Gotcha. You you have told me that this is your first attempt at being an author. Have you always had the desire to be a, an expressor of creative things? Uh, yes, I always like to tell. I mean, like good stories, and I always like to tell good stories. Have Everybody said I have a real creative mind. And this one took you a few years to complete. Did you work it uh, or put this story together uh, by developing the characters individually or developing the storyline first with a rough outline? How did you create the the contents of your first novel? I basically started out developing the characters and making a basic outline. It actually started, I actually started out as trying to write it as a screenplay. But then it just got, I had so many different ideas and I had to make it into a novel. The title, what is the significance of that? What does it mean? Quasar Mirror. Quasar. Quasar Mirror. Quasar is a pulse of energy that can be generated from space. And the mirror is the opposite effect. So in other words, the Quasar Mirror pushes the whole ship crew back into the present day. Hmm. Okay. I'm also noticing on day 20, you have one of the characters addressing Mario and saying, uh, Swine and broughten, roasted pork tenderized with beer and herbs slow-cooked, and then you talk about them reading off the rest of the recipe and the feast. Most of the ingredients, potato salad, horseradish, chicken dumplings, and dark forest cake, is uh, those are things I can relate to today. And that's uh, one thing that right. caught my attention about your novel. There's uh, ways that we can identify everything's not compressed or, or dehydrated in your, in your uh, descriptive of what they were participating in. Yes. I try to give it uh, human flavors. No, uh, you know, I think the human being would still remain the same, but the science around them definitely would be changing or advancing. Absolutely, it would. You have, in completing this, you 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 mentioned that you started off to write a play or a novel that would be adaptable to movie, maybe a movie script. What right. is the most exciting thing that the characters engage in? in your novel that you think will will really captivate the reader? Well, what really is, as soon as they get through their mission, this one, that Quasar Mirror hits them, and it actually puts them back in time, back to year uh, 2016. Mm -hmm. And the biggest problem about it 
throughout the journey, they're supposed to pick up the food in water pots so it can resupply them with food and the water. Since they got pushed back into time, now they have to become masters of survival. And is that a learning process all over again for these adventurers? Right. They have to learn to survive with, with the food and water they have on hand, and plus two, they have to go to uh, take rotations on uh, hibernation. And of three the months at a time. And the characters that you have developed, which of those do you identify with the most, or feel like it uh, perhaps is someone that you can identify with, and which will the reader think they will identify with the most? Hmm, that's a tough question. You've got. Uh, I think the most person that would identify with would probably be Susan, and. The character I can identify myself is with the XO, Thomas. Thomas. As right. as an author and a creative person, do you journal by any chance? A lot of my authors will keep notes on things that are happening around them and maybe adapt them to a, a novel later on. Is that something you do, or is this something that just flows out as a creative process? I, I do it both ways. I mean, whatever happens, you know, if I see something happens in science, and then uh, I try to use it, develop it, try to make it more advanced, so that way it'd be more futuristic. And as a child, uh, I know my authors are influenced by other people, by books and by experiences, some in the theater and so on. Is there any movie or book that you read or were introduced to as a child that perhaps has uh, given you inspiration for what you're doing now? Um, no, not really on that part. I'm more like a person that loves movies. And the movies, uh, I guess science fiction, has been one of those main right. inspirations for you. That's correct. Star Wars. Uh, yes. And uh, are there any goals that you haven't achieved yet as far as an author? I know this is your first book, so I, I don't know if a Pulitzer Prize is something that you uh, foresee in the near future. What are your immediate goals besides getting this out to the public? Uh, are you thinking that this might be adaptable to a movie, perhaps? Uh, yes, uh, I already try to work on that part too. And one other goal is to try to become a better writer. It definitely Maybe. comes with experience and with with practice. Right, I'd like to have myself challenge. This is uh, your first novel. Is there another novel in your future? Are you working on a maybe a sequel to Quasar Mirror? No, I'm working on a different novel. I'm probably but. Uh, probably a little bit more than a quarter way finish. Uh, it's a detective novel. Well, congratulations on the completion of this. The very first in a in a novel, and hopefully a series of novels that will inspire the reader. This one, titled Quasar Mirror, my author Stephen McCoy has joined me from Florida in the United States of America. Stephen, my listeners will want to get a copy of this and enjoy the read and the fast pace that you have created for them. How do they do so? Well, they can uh, go to Amazon. They can go to... Uh, Google, it's available online, Barnes & Noble, and uh, the 
Experts Bookstore. They can get it there. Excellent. And I think you are also planning to launch a website in the future so they can look for you under your name, Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, McCoy, double C-M-C-C-O-Y, Stephen McCoy, and uh, find not only information about this novel, Quasar Mirror, but also anything you attempt to do in the future. And I wish you the best of luck and hope we can talk to you again when the next in the series of uh, efforts are released. Okay. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Stephen, for joining me today and sharing your story. For Ex Labors On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is A Professor and CEO, The True Story, Volume 1, and subtitled Growing Up Through Two Wars. Uh, my guest who joins me from Virginia Beach in the United States of America is author Richard T. Cheng. Welcome, sir, to the program. Glad to be here. Well, thank you for joining me. The back of your book really outlines the overview of your life. This is called, or says, it's a true story of a man's full adventure and unusual encounters that are highly interesting to read. That was the, the, the main title on that, but it tells your story. Richard Chenyun Cheng was born in June 1934. Since the age of three, he had been suffering from the war between China and Japan and the Chinese Civil War between the Nationalists and the Communists. He moved frequently to escape the war and suffered immensely from losing his close relatives. At the age of 15, he escaped to mainland China, to, from, from mainland, mainland China to Taiwan, where he grew up and completed his undergraduate education. He was married in Taiwan, and when he decided to go to the States for his master's degree, he left his wife, a son, and another son. When he arrived at the school, he had been thirty only $30 to your name, struggled for 10 years in between studying and working, and when he finally finished his doctoral degree, he became an educator in the effort 
to develop computer science programs for various industries of higher education. He was promoted from assistant professor to associate professor to full professorship in six short years and to eminent professorship in another three years. That's an amazing accomplishment. In 1985, he decided to give up his position as an eminent professor and chairman of computer science at Old Dominion University to establish a small company. Through less than five years of struggle, he achieved the goal of making it a multi-million dollar company. In 1991, he received the largest contract the IRS awarded to a small company, which was for $240 million over six years. And you've been active as a uh, in the Organization of Chinese Americans, the Committee of 100, and the Chinese American Foundation for Americans. And you've also done a lot of philanthropic work, easy for me to say. Welcome to the program, sir. Honored to visit with you. It is my honor to be with you. Your story is remarkable. You have uh, penned this in a little over 300 pages, I believe it is. Why do you think that your story is uh, one that will grab the attention of the reader? Well, I think it uh, contains uh, the details of my true story, and which is, uh, to me, it's very exciting. And come to think of it, it's amazing to me that I have... Uh, going through so much in my lifetime. This is why I decided to write it when I was 62 years old. Started to write it. Start to write it. And how long did it take, Professor, to complete? Uh, about three years. Three years. You have uh, such a remarkable history, and many people that would have this history might be reluctant to share its details. You've talked about the warring situation of, of surviving two different war scenarios. How long a uh, time frame did that cover? It covers uh, my age of three to age of 15 years so. So 3 to 15, you were in, uh, I won't call them dire circumstances, but definitely dif difficult. Your family moved around a lot. You also mentioned that some of your family members uh, suffered during that wartime. Uh, what was the result of your family environment? Well, it uh, was <coughs> started with seven moved from Nanjing to Chongqing, and from Chongqing to Guizhou, it, in, in the meantime, my sisters, my grandmother, my grandfather, and brother died uh, of uh, lacking of medication wow. due to embargo by the Japanese. And so we lost uh, four close relatives. That must have been a very difficult time for you. And at, at 15, is that when you escaped the circumstances that you were uh, in uh, growing up in yes yes at the uh, age of 15 i escaped uh, mainland china with my mo mom and father to taiwan to taiwan how was that escape possible was it one that was permitted or did you leave the country under under cover and uh, secretly uh, my father <coughs> has to leave home and uh, stay in his uh, station and escape the communist uh, regime to Taiwan on the ship <coughs> ship transporting ship. 
Okay. That uh, and did you also use a transport ship to to escape mainland China? Yes, and uh, three days later, my mom and I and my dog Lion had to uh, go out at night as if we were shopping, and uh, while we we're going through the city to the pier, that was uh, a scary experience. And we boarded a sampan, uh, a, a, a specially equipped ship, uh, boat for us. Only my mother and I and, and the dog, Lion, and uh, escaped the Fuzhou, from Fuzhou to Ma Wei. That's going through the Ming River, down to the ship waiting uh, to transport sh- uh, soldiers. We were on the soldier transporting ship to Taiwan. Really? Uh, the soldiers were, I'm assuming, the opposition then? Yes, those are national- nationalist soldiers. Chiang Kai-shek's, Chiang, Chiang Kai-shek, the uh, president, right. was ordering to, tra- to sh- ship to Taiwan. They shipped uh, close to, to a million soldiers to Taiwan and uh, ready to counterattack after the regroup. Where do you think the, the, the drive or the ambition to pursue education came from? Well, I, <clears throat> I learned that uh, education is very important. And uh, why in Taiwan... I was teaching in college, and uh, without uh, mass, uh, advanced degree, you you don't you don't get uh, promotions and uh, and so forth. So <clears throat> I decided to go to U.S. to obtain my master's degree. And what what time frame was that? Was that in the early fifties or or so? Uh, in the late 50s and early 60s. Early 60s. And you, your English, I'm sure, was uh, not developed at that time. How long did it take you? How difficult was it for you to adapt to the English-speaking world? I came to the U.S. without the preparation of uh, English. I only learned it from high school, high school level English. And uh, when I came here... I was only Chinese student in, on campus, so I was forced to speak to my fellow students and professors, and uh, I also repaired TVs. Really? By driving truck to neighbors uh, in the city, so I pick up the language rather quickly. Well, you have fifteen chapters or so in this uh, over 300 pages. You say it took about three years. One of the chapters that caught my attention was Purple Flowers and Crashing Plane. Uh, what is the content of that chapter? That chapter uh, uh, describes my age of 10 or so and uh, station in Chongqing, uh, an airport called Baisi. Then that was a period of time. The crashing plane, what does that 
entail? What is that? Is that an actual plane that you you viewed that that crashed, or what did that impact your story? Alone in the field, when the plane was uh, tailing smoke and uh, crashed near near me, only two three hundred yards away. Wow. You in your story, did you write this to? encourage other people? Was it a family project? What is the, the, the reason that you wanted to share all of the details of your life? Well, I just felt it's interesting to describe how lack of education of, uh, of a child and uh, later on catching up in studies not until I was in high school, I started to try real hard in, to study. And uh, later on, I became an educator. I realized that uh, the importance of advanced degree, so I came to the U.S. to pursue that. And uh, after I reached my goal of uh, my profession, I decided to go into business. And this this book describes my uh, entire life uh, in a manner that uh, I have determination and the drive to accomplish something, and uh, I did it. Would you also, because I, I certainly look at your story as one of inspiration and determination on a personal level, but do you feel like maybe your story will help someone else that's going through a struggle? Yes. Yes. I, I think I think that uh, describes uh, my uh, lack of education in the, in the beginning is not so detrimental to my success. There's... I can chop, and uh, in the high school level, and uh, and going on for my college education. Does your family history, besides you, uh, mom and dad, were they also educated people, or were they regular folks? My father is educated. My mom, my mom is not. And the underlying motivation, I guess, from the story would be. Don't let circumstances destroy your future. You can make it if you try. Yes, you you said it so so well for me. Oh, thank you. Two hundred and forty million dollar professor. That also is a fascinating story. How did you get the idea that you could, as a uh, a specialist in computer science and so on, how did you feel that you were qualified to start a company and uh, go after business in the marketplace? Well. My son plays a important role in this. He convinced me that uh, my trade, my field, could be applied to commerce as well. So he he talked me into a slapish a small company, and uh, we just go from there. It's it's an incredible story. Again, the title of the book is The $240 Million Professor, and it also says it's Volume 1. Is there a Volume 2, 3, or 4 coming in the near future? Yes. There's a Volume 2. Describe my uh, my 
age 15 to 27 in Taiwan. Volume 3 is uh, describing my struggling years in the U.S. until I uh, established a small company. Number Volume 4 describes uh, the tragedy and uh, triumph. That is, I have uh, suffered lots of tragedies in my life. And uh, so as in my adult lives, I suffer a lot from illness to loss of relatives and so forth. Thank you for taking time to share your story. This is a, a an inspiring read. If you want to find about find out what it takes to be successful in business and in life, this book is filled with anecdotal material. It has photos in it. It talks about your personal life, but it also is one that will work and inspire anybody that needs to be encouraged. The title of the book, again, is The $240 Million Professor, Volume 1, Growing Up Through Two Wars. And my guest has been professor and uh, entrepreneur and author, Richard T. Chang. Thank you. Professor, I understand that there actually has been a change to the title, although it came out as the $240 million professor. You had some concerns that people might raise their eyebrows to that, so it's been changed. What is the current title of your book? The Professor and CEO, True Story. True Story. And if they look under the title, they'll find it, but if they also look under the author, Richard T. Chang, they'll also be able to locate it. Yes. Thank you, sir, for joining me. Where can my listeners get a copy of your book? I think they can get it now <clears throat> through uh, Amazon.com and uh, through Barnes and & Noble and uh, some other stores. Very good. They can request it by name. And for clarification, that title has been changed to A Professor and CEO, A True Story. Also, and by your name, Richard T. Chang, yes. C-H-E-N-G. Richard, do you have a website yet? Yes, my website is uh, simply www.richardtcheng.com. Fabulous. Thank you for joining me today, and best of luck with your book. I think it's uh, excellent reading and should be a part of everyone's library. Thank you for joining me today, sir. Thank you so much. My pleasure. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Only once every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria, Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six super-powered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria, Texas, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on AstronetRadio.com. Back to Ex Libris. Welcome to Author Voices on Air, and I'm your host, Rick Pell. 
Our next book will appeal to many of our listeners, especially with the lead up to the holidays, when we can all be a little bit guilty of overindulging in festive fare. The title of the book is Body Weight Regulation, Essential Knowledge to Lose Weight and Keep It Off. And here to tell us more and to give us some much needed inspiration is the author, Joseph Proieto. Welcome to the show, Joseph, and thank you for joining me. Now, let me start by telling our listeners that you are, in fact, a professor. Tell us a little more about that side of things. Yes, Rick, thank you. I, I, I'm a professor of medicine. I, I'm now Professor Emeritus at the University of Melbourne. Uh, I trained as an endocrinologist and have uh, conducted my research predominantly in type 2 diabetes and for the last 20 years, uh, both diabetes and obesity. I moved to study obesity because it is the main driver of type 2 diabetes. So I reasoned that if we need, if we need to uh, control diabetes, we have to control obesity. You mentioned about your research and about your area of expertise. How did this lead to you writing this book? I was moved to write this book because there is a lot of misinformation about obesity in the community. Nearly everybody assumes that obesity is caused by bad habits, when in fact it's much more complex than that. And there is clear evidence, for example, of a genetic predisposition to obesity. In addition, much of the information contained in the book is of recent origin. Uh, some of the work that we did in my own laboratory um, was only published in 2011 and 2014, for example. And many in the community, many in the medical profession were not taught uh, about uh, these topics because the research is recent. So I thought a good way of educating both the health profession and also the general public is to put it all in a book, um, in one, um, one book that can then explain um, most of what needs to be known and what our current state of knowledge is about this important topic. Now, this next question may, for our listeners, have an obvious answer, but... Who is your intended readership? Who do you think this book is for and why? When I started writing this book, obviously the first question you ask yourself, who is your target audience? And I tried my best to write the book in such a way that it would be readable for the um, educated lay person uh, but would also not be too um, simple, if you like, for the medical profession, the medical students, the doctors, the dietitians, uh, exercise physiologists, etc., who um, manage patients with obesity. Now, we've talked about 
weight loss, we've talked about type 2 diabetes. Um, those things aside, what else would you like to see readers of this book to learn or take away from what you've written? Well, after reading this book, uh, the reader will learn about obesity, um, how we assess it. They'll learn about the complications of obesity. They'll learn about the um, really elegant way uh, with which, by which the brain regulates body weight. They will learn why nearly everybody regains weight after weight loss. And then there are two chapters, one on weight loss itself and the other on helping what is the best way to maintain weight loss long term um, that then address how best to lose weight and to keep it off. And the book um, finishes with um, some recipes about low-carbohydrate diets that are part of both the weight-losing and the weight-maintaining phases of the program. Now, we've talked about weight loss being you know, a big contributing factor to type 2 diabetes and, and obviously other health implications, but... Why do you think that um, obesity, if I can use that word, is becoming an increasing problem in, in modern society? What do you think is the, the major factor? The, the major factor is clearly the fact that in our modern life, we have an overabundance of energy-dense food 24-7, but in addition to that, we, those of us who live in cities um, have had obligatory physical activity removed. We no longer have to work physically to go find our food, for example. Um, so that has been imposed now on a biology that was adapted for conserving energy, for looking for food all the time. Because remember, we our biology was optimised when we didn't have agriculture, where we didn't have supermarkets or refrigerators. So the biology says you need to be hungry, you need to be um, able to store fat easily, and that has come up against our own cleverness in changing our environment to remove physical work and to have all this food that we have now. So it's a combination of two things. The book describes an analogy of two pots that are left out in the rain overnight. One is a 50-litre pot the other is a five-litre pot. When you come back the next morning, you notice that both pots are full. And you ask of the 50-litre pot, is this 50-litre pot holding 50 litres of water because it rained last night? 
And the answer has to be yes, because if it hadn't rained, it wouldn't have had any water in it. But in fact, the reason why this pot is holding 50 litres as opposed to the 5 litre pot is because it was made a 50 litre pot. In other words, the, the environment appears to be the only cause of the pot being full of water, but in fact, it was also made a 50 litre pot. And he, this is the analogy with the genetic makeup. People who become obese have a genetic predisposition to do so in our current environment. It's often said that the, the food industry, in particular the fast food industry and uh, you know sweet manufacturers and so on, are very much to blame for the much of the obesity problem. What do you say in, in relation to that? It's not that simple. It's not that simple. The, the book discusses um, the evidence that apart from the genetic predisposition, there's also an, another phenomenon called epigenetics. And the way that uh, f some foods may cause obesity is not the way you might think by providing extra calories there is some evidence that what we feed our children early on in life may epigenetically imprint genes that then lead them to have permanent obesity in, in future life. And there's a, there's a section which is probably the most um, technical of the sections that describes how a gene is, works and how epigenetic change can occur. My view is that most of obesity is either genetic or epigenetic. And it's the epigenetic component that is responding to the environment. And I guess having high energy foods early on in life in susceptible people may then lead to epigenetic change leading to obesity. And that's how the food industry may be inadvertently contributing to the obesity epidemic. It's not causing obesity on its own. And the reason for that is if you are genetically lean, the environment cannot make you fat. It can make you overweight and only. And the reason for that is the most powerful hormone that inhibits hunger comes from fat. It is made in fat cells. So this is a classical negative feedback loop. So you can do the thought experiment. If you are skinny, generally, naturally, but you put yourself in an obesogenic environment where you can eat all you want and, and it's high energy and you don't exercise, you start, to, you start to accumulate fat. As you make fat, you make more and more of this hormone, leptin, which then feeds back and inhibits your hunger and makes your energy expenditure go up. So it produces a self-limiting uh, weight gain, if you like, and my view is that that can lead to six or seven kilo weight gain but will not lead to severe obesity unless you have a gene that prevents leptin from working properly.
Now, some may say, and I'm sure you've heard this yourself, um, that it's just another slimming book. But in your opinion, what do you think makes your book different and why should our listeners choose your book? Well, many weight loss books are not based on hard scientific evidence. This one is. And in addition... It's written by someone who's treated obesity for the last 20 years in a public hospital, uh, and it's also um, evidence-based. Um, most most of the other books don't bother, under, well, they don't understand body weight regulation. And as with any condition, unless you understand its true cause, you cannot achieve good treatment or management. You need to understand a condition in order to treat it properly. And this book addresses all that since it is based on hard scientific evidence, much of which which is quite recent. Give me three words that you think would best describe the effectiveness of this book. Three words, the effectiveness. Well... Um, knowledge, effective therapy, long-term maintenance. I know that's more than three words, but they're three phrases, but yeah. Yeah, I know where you're coming from. Now, getting back to right at the beginning when you sat down and decided to write this book, tell me some of the the challenges that, that you faced and Obviously, on the, on the positive side, some of the rewards that you got from writing this book. Well, the the challenge, as I've already mentioned, was knowing how to, where to pitch it, for who. Because, you know, if I'm writing for physicians only, I would have put a lot more technical information in there. If I'm writing for the lay audience only, I may not have put the epigenetic uh, chapter in it, for example. So the the biggest challenge was trying to make it accessible to both the, the lay public and the medical profession and not um, make it seem uh, inappropriate for either. The best thing for me to come out of it is if I can relieve some patients who are obese from the guilt of being obese, that would be good. If I can lead some doctors to be able to treat obesity more effectively, that would also be good. And to help people um, control their weight um, would be a great satisfaction to me. Do you have any plans to write a follow-up book or possibly a book on something completely different? I have um, a nearly complete draft of a book called Rediscovering God, um, which I I started writing before I wrote my weight loss book, but which um, requires two more chapters. Well, we'll look forward to hearing more about that. Now, in closing, is there anything that you would like to add that we haven't covered here 
yet uh, during the interview that you feel is important for our listeners to know about your book and about the work that you're you're doing? I think the the book explains why nearly everybody struggles to maintain weight loss. Um, it shows that there is a powerful biological mechanism by which the body defends a set point of weight and shows all the evidence for that. The book also then describes the best method to lose weight. It is, it's best to lose weight quickly rather than gradually, as we demonstrated in 2014, and it makes no difference to the weight regain. It's not true that the quicker you lose it, the quicker you put it on. The book then uh, also talks about the strategies required to maintain weight loss and it justifies very powerfully the need for appetite suppression following weight loss and, and demonstrates that this has to be lifelong, that obesity is in fact a chronic condition. Thank you, Joseph. Body Weight Regulation, Essential Knowledge to Lose Weight and Keep It Off is published by Libris and is available direct from the publisher at Libris.com and all good bookstockists. Once again, I would like to thank my guest today, the author, Professor Joseph Prioetto, for joining me on the show and we wish him every success with his book. This is Rick Bell for Togonet Radio. Thank you for listening. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.